chapter 2, 1 Samuel 2. We will be beginning in verse 11. As the, uh, as the book opened, we met Elkanah and his two wives, but our, our focus was drawn, if you remember, to, to Hannah, the, the righteous sufferer. And uh, when we left off, Hannah was sort of uh, singing her praise to the Lord, um, it's a song prayer, and, uh, and a prophecy, it's a song prayer prophecy. I imagine she was kind of dancing around as she was doing it too. But it sets up the story that's ahead. The whole prayer, uh, and in this song, she sings of her blessedness for finding a refuge in the Lord. She sings of the humiliation that is ahead for the haughty and for the lifting up that is the expectation of the lowly. And she sings of the coming king. Well, that humiliation of the haughty and that lifting of the lowly, we'll see that begin right away in our story this morning. Uh, the one we see in Hophni and Phinehas and the other we see in Samuel. And, and as we read this passage, notice how the action shifts back and forth between Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel. Our attention is batted back and forth between these because the contrast is what we're supposed to pick up on. From ugly to beautiful, ugly to beautiful. And we're going to see as the story progresses that these ugly, haughty ones are brought down. And the lowly, beginning with Hannah and Samuel, but climaxing in David, are exalted. Samuel is on the rise in our passage, and Hophni and Phinehas and Eli's house are on the decline. We begin with a picture of Samuel, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So, so the family goes home, and Samuel's left there. Now, he doesn't yet know the Lord personally. We saw that. Uh, well, well, we looked ahead to see that. Uh, but he's ministering to the Lord there. Now, this isn't sacrificial service. That's not what this word translated ministering means. Uh, we will see him do that, but not yet. Uh, he's a boy. Now, the law said you were to wield the sacrificial knife from the ages of 30 to 50. You can find that in Numbers 4. But there was no king in Israel. Everyone did was they, as, you know, they was right in their own eyes. So I don't know how well they followed that law. Um, but Samuel is a little boy at this point. He's a... He's a servant boy. That's the picture that we're, we're given here. Uh, now we're introduced to Eli's sons. Verse 12. Now, Eli, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did to all of Israel. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast. 
for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, well, let the fat be burned now and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They're, they are they're called worthless men. The, the Hebrew is they're sons of Belial. Now Hannah had pr- protested. Remember when, when Eli thought that she was drunk, she said, Oh no, my Lord, don't regard your servant as a worthless woman, as a daughter of Belial. Uh, worthless works, but I think the point is that these men are operating, operating essentially without a conscience. Their conscience is so calloused over that it's non-functional. Um, but to get a handle on it, we should really listen to, Paul, to the Apostle Paul. Uh, he doesn't even translate this word. He transliterates it. He just gives it to you in the original. Um, he tells the... Uh, the, the Corinthians, that they are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he asks a series of rhetorical questions. The answer to each one is, is none, right? He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None. For, or what fellowship has light with darkness? None. Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What accord has Christ with Belial? So Belial is set here as opposite Christ. Hophni and Phinehas are sons of their father, not Eli, but the devil. These are actual enemies, not only in the ranks of Israel, but in the ranks of Israel's servants. God's servants serving his people, enemies in the garb of and with all the authority of priests. Now listen to Paul's words from Philippians 3. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we wait from from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So there there are two peoples, one whose end is glory, whose God is enthroned above, uh, and who glory in the crucifixion of Christ their Lord. And the others whose end is destruction, whose God is their, the passions, the deceitful passions of their own flesh. That's what's embodied there in their belly, belly. Their gods are their own bellies. And who proudly display as glorious the very things that make them shameful before God. What a great depiction 
uh, description of Hophni and Phinehas. They're in this destruction, as we will see. Their God is their belly, which is true literally, but as we're going to see, also they get more broad with their appetites. The, uh, they glory in the things that shame them before God. This, this three-pronged fork thing that they're doing, um, that's not how it's supposed to be done. Uh, the priests were to have a regular portion. There was, a, there was a standard cut of meat that they were supposed to have. They were actually supposed to have two of them. Uh, they, got, they got all the grain offerings. If you were an Israelite and you brought a grain offering, that went to the priest. Um, he, he got, if you brought a, a whole burnt offering, he got the skin from that. Uh, they got whatever gifts you, you would bring, but in addition to all of that, they get this. A portion of the food that the worshiper offers in the peace offering. The priest is supposed to get two pieces of it. Um, I mean, he's got to eat. He's serving you. This makes sense. Um, he's got, it's a double portion. He gets the breast and the right thigh. You can find that in Leviticus 7. The rest of the meat was for the, the worshipers to enjoy, the one who brought the sacrifice. The, 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 the fat was burned. That belonged to God. The breast and the right thigh belonged to the priest. And the rest for it was for you to enjoy. So this three-pronged fork thing, you can imagine how unfair it is. Notice that it's while it's boiling. You ever made a, you know, a... a brisket that you've braised. Have you ever braised anything? It, when it gets done, when, it, when it's boiled long enough, it's fork tender. But until that, if you were to stab a fork into it and you pick it up, what's coming up? Everything is coming up. They are utterly robbing the worshipers. And it gets worse, which the indicate, text indicates with moreover. <laughs> As if that were not enough, they weren't content with today's blessings today and tomorrow's blessings tomorrow. Nope, they wanted raw meat. They, why do they want raw meat? I don't know for sure. Um, so they could cook it how they want, um, so they could sell it? I, I don't know. Uh, but they steal, they threaten forced to do it, and the worst part is, this is the worst part of it all, in this, they keep the worshiper from offering the sacrifice of peace. This is supposed to be about the fellowship that the people of God have with one another under His loving care. What we're going to share at the end of this with the Lord's Supper is essentially the New Testament version of this feast. And instead they are threatened and prevented from burning the fat. That's the most important part of this feast. That's really the sacrifice. It's the part that goes to God, is the fat is burned. The, the breast and the right thigh go to the priest, but the, and the rest is enjoyed by the worshiper, but the fat being burned, that's the sacrifice that goes to God. At least burn the fat now, the worshiper says. And then take what you want. You see, the worshiper isn't there for the meal. 
he would very much like to enjoy that meal, but he's there for the sacrifice, so he says, just, just burn the fat, and then you can have it. Nope. Give it. So the worshiper, instead of going home full and rejoicing in the peace that he has with the Lord, goes away hungry and dejected and unable to have actually worshipped God the way God commanded that he be worshipped. Why not let him burn the fat? I mean, is this for meanness sake? It might be. They, they clearly weren't nice guys. But listen to the law. In the book written to Eli's family, Leviticus. Chapter 3. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Chapter 7. Speak to the people of Israel saying, you shall eat no fat ox or sheep or goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of one that is torn by beasts may be put to some other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which an offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. So, they took, they, they took the people's portion and now they take God's portion of the sacrifice. And notice that their sin is quantified here. It is very great. Um, it's exacerbated by a number of things, including them abusing their position. But now the focus shifts again to Samuel, and, and the scene is very different. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived, and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So, Hannah didn't get to see her boy day in and day out. Uh, she, had, she was fasting from those joys of motherhood, right? But, but she did have a new joy every time she went up to Shiloh to worship the Lord. Uh, she, she would make for Samuel a, a new robe to fit his growing body. And, um, and so we're given this super sweet picture of of her making that robe every year. But already, this, this little boy ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Remember, that's how we were introduced to him. He was a boy ministering to the Lord, even though he didn't know the Lord, ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Now he is ministering to the Lord. Uh, he is clothed in, a, in the ephod and a linen robe, priestly garments, high priestly garments, high priestly-ish garments anyway, and, and it all seems to have divine approval. Now he's not in the presence of Eli. Now he's in the presence of the Lord. And, and Samuel is going to be this prophet, priest, judge who anoints Israel's kings. And the Lord once again grants the, the high priest's words power. And so we get some sense of divine approval of this because the, 
the priest blesses her. She has children, that sort of thing, and, and we know where this is going. She, you know, she had sung that the barren woman has born seven. You remember that? That was her song. The, the one who was barren has born seven. Well, she, she's going to end up with six. Uh, I think this is an example where, um, you know, sometimes in, in the Bible you read a number like seven, and it's not so much quantitative as conceptual. And this is about fullness um, and completion. And so she's, and also she sings a generality for those who make the Lord their refuge, not a, a, a prophetic autobiography. But now we have to, to go back into this ugly stuff, verses 22 to 25. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So Eli's, he's very old. Um, again, you're not supposed to wield the sacrificial knife after 50 uh, but we know that we're, we're going to be told that his eyes are dimming anyway. So I'm pretty sure his days of sacrificing are done. He's reliant on his sons to do that now. Um, but he's still the high priest. And he should have done something. Now, I'm not entirely sure what he should have done, but the scripture is very clear that he didn't do what he needed to do. He should have done something. Um, and whatever he eats is what they bring him now. You know, that, that custom that we read about, the custom of the priests with the three-pronged fork, who started that? Was that Hophni and Phinehas or was that Eli? We're not told. I ask not as an accusation because we're not told, but I do notice that Eli is implicated in verse 29. It's not just the boys who are guilty here. But undoubtedly, the boys have gone farther in their rebellion than Eli. Um, we don't get the sense that Eli is an unbeliever. Um, he's, he's not a very good priest. Don't misunderstand. He's not what the Bible would consider a great guy. But we don't get the sense that he's an unbeliever. Uh, I'm not even willing to say that he's a terrible father. Now, I'm, a lot of the sermons that I've listened to, boy, he gets raked under the, over the coals. For his fatherness, he's not a good priest. Um, not a great priest, anyway. I don't say he's done some things that are right. He didn't set a great example as his boys were learning to be priests themselves. So he's not flawless, but. How many pastors or missionaries have children who reject the Lord? It's almost a, it, it, you know, it's almost an expectation in some ways when you hear PK or MK. The text tells us that the Lord didn't let them listen to their dad. Not that he didn't warn them, but that he, the Lord didn't let them listen because the Lord wanted to kill them, verse 25. So, Eli was a glutton, but not a sexual predator. 
his boys have added that new stain on the robe of Aaron. Now, if you were struck by the fact that there are girls serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting at all, so was I, but I shouldn't have been. You know, what it is, is we rushed through those last five chapters of Exodus, remember? We rushed through those. Um, well, if we had not rushed through, we would have read this carefully. Verse 38, 8. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the girls being there is a good thing. Uh, Hophni and Phineas sleeping with them, with them, that's not. Uh, and apparently they were open about it uh, because the report is spread abroad. Eli hears, Eli keeps hearing. Uh, God's glory is dwelling in the tent that Hophni and Phinehas serve. God's glory dwells there. That is what was to set them apart. That was what was to, to sanctify them as a people. God dwelling in their midst. And all of that was evangelistic, that they would be set apart as a people and sanctified so that the rest of the world would know that there's a God in Israel. But the news that's being spread now is about lust and avarice. They glory in their shame. Their gods are their bellies and all the sinful passions of the flesh. Now, Eli does warn them, but he does not restrain them. Look, the law demanded their death. Um, the matter with fat, and the, there are a number of ways that you could look at how the law demands their death. Um, but Eli's not willing to take that step. Do you remember how the Levites got ordained? You remember, we, we just went through Exodus. Remember you had the, 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 the uh, golden calf incident? And Moses comes in and he sees, uh, comes down and he sees all that's going on. And he says, who's on the Lord's side? And the Levi Levites stepped up and said, we are. And you remember? They had to go through the camp slaughtering their own family and friends. That was the ordination of the Levites. The Levites are the guardians of the sanctuary. The holiness of God is more dear to me than family and friend bonds. That's the point for the Levites. Family ties are specifically cast off in their ordination. Listen to Moses when, when in that that great speech of Deuteronomy, we, we've skipped over a good bit of scripture here, but in that great speech from Deuteronomy, um, listen to what Moses says of Levi. He's blessing all the tribes, and he comes to Levi, and he says of Levi, he said, give, your, give to Levi your Thummim and your Umim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa, whom you quarreled, uh, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. That's what set Levi apart 
But Eli held his boys in higher regard than he held the Lord. Uh, because he didn't demand their death or their removal from office. I don't know how he would have removed them. You know, there's not, there's not rules for that given in the, in the Scriptures. Um, there's no provision for that in the law. But I know there's that rebellious, pa- that rebellious child passage where you got an obstinate child and you bring him before the elders and, the, and they stone him, right? But these are, as, as they say where my wife grew up, grew up, these men are all grown up. These are adults. Can you deal with them the same way? I'm not exactly sure. But he's the high priest. He should have done something. And this warning that he gives isn't regarded as enough. You know, that Levitical ordination, considering the Lord first above family and friends, that that falls on us all now. Did you realize that? in the sense that God demands greater allegiance than that which is naturally established by a family. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, Eli did warn them. It wasn't enough, but it was a good warning. Um, Now, you might read this warning and think, Dude, you're the priest. What do you mean? Aren't all sacrifices about our guilt before the Lord? And don't they all point to Jesus? Well, again, Eli's not perfect. um, But there's no reason to regard him as an unbeliever. And I think what he's after is what Numbers 15 would call high-handed sins. Sinning without remorse, with no anticipation of judgment. It's what Hebrews describes in chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You remember last week how I talked about Asaph in Psalm 73, uh, how he'd almost given up the fight. He he looks on the prosperity of the wicked and and, and... but then when he, when he thought how to, to handle this, understand this, it was a wearisome for him until he went to the t- tabernacle, remember, to the temple. As he goes to the sanctuary, he sees the end. In all the blood that is spilled, he sees the end of the wicked. That's what restored his hope, that the Lord has a day to bring down the haughty from their perch. But, but Hophni and Phinehas are... They're dull to the meaning of all of these sacrifices. I mean, they're performing the sacrifices and missing the whole point. They don't perceive their own destruction. And they're dull to their father's warning because God was determined to kill them. Now, they acted according to their nature. God simply left them to be who they are. 
but he's not going to let his glory be besmirched like this. Now, before we get back to Samuel, let me just tell you that I see the great warning to me in this passage, and I tremble. Peter tells me to shepherd the flock of God that's among me, exercising oversight, not because I'm under compulsion, because I have to, but willingly, because I want to, as God would have me, and not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in my charge, but being examples of the flock. This is the exact opposite of Hophni and Phineas's behavior. So pray for me, brothers and sisters. I stand by God's grace alone. So pray for me. Verse 26. Now the, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Nope, you're not in Luke 2. I know you, you might think you've just somehow transported yourself into Luke 2, but these are the very words that are used to transition us from, from Jesus' childhood to his, his adult, adulthood and ministry, right? Mary marveled, marveled over, um, over the work of the Lord in her, modeling it on Hannah's song, and, and now this. The comparison is, is intentional. A, a bad report has gone out for, um, for Eli's sons, Samuel is growing in favor with God and men, uh, and, and that contrast is intentional. Let's read the rest, verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to your house and to your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up onto my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares... I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now declares the Lord, far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. So I find it fascinating in this section that 
there is a gift of God that is taken back. They were given a trust a, through a perpetually inherited office. But if that trust is violated, God can take away that trust. And if that bothers you at all, um, I want you to just consider the parable that Jesus told about the unforgiving servant. If you remember, it ends this way. Uh, his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. The servant owed the master a bunch, a bunch of money. The master decided not to pursue it. It's not that he no longer had the claim. It's that he decided not to pursue it. And when he realizes that the guy doesn't appreciate mercy and grace, he removes that mercy and pursues the debt. What I'm trying to get at, brothers and sisters, is this. God is not hamstrung by his own mercy. He is sovereign. He forgives whom he forgives. He is sovereign. So he's not hamstrung by his own mercy here. Oh, I gave him a perpetual office. I can't take it away. No, that office was a picture of what he was going to do. And so he can certainly take it away by, for dereliction of duty. You know, for their ordination, Moses was directed, we just read it a few weeks ago, you shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them, and as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Now, I may have season tickets to the Ravens. I don't, so don't ask. But those tickets would admit me to every home game. But if I were to violate the rules of having those tickets, they could be revoked. Well, it's the same here. The priesthood was a privilege. The Aaronic priesthood was destined to pass away. Hebrews lays out all the shortcomings of this great picture of what God was doing. Priests die and they have to repeat their sacrifices over and over again. Uh, but, these, but these proud men, Hophni and Phinehas, who have abused their positions are now brought low. The house of Eli will constantly be plagued with, with men dying before their time, dying early, dying young, dying violently. And God will bless his people. But since they were serving themselves and not God's people, they're not going to enjoy it when God does. Now, we're going to see a lot of that play out under David's reign. But we'll get, the, you know, we'll get this initial sign in a couple of weeks. Hophni and Phinehas will die in one day. But first, God's going to introduce himself to Samuel. But that, that second sign in verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. You see how these messianic promises are beginning to, 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 to blossom, right? 
And yet, you see how there's confusion in it. Like, we can see, standing where we are on the other side of an empty tomb, we see how all of these promises fit in one man, Jesus Christ. But you got here, you know, there's a faithful priest, and then there's an, an anointed. We see that those are one, one Savior. But they weren't so sure. It was, it was dark and puzzly in the Old Testament. So this priest, though, who will be raised up, this, this anointed, uh, that's not Samuel and it's not David, but Samuel and David both point to who it is. Jesus Christ is that anointed royal priest in whom all these offices come together. Uh, the, the judgment ends in a sweet irony. God has not utterly cut them off. They will die young. They will weep their eyes out. And then look, the, the gluttons become beggars. Everyone who's left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And say, please let, put me in a, in a priest's office so I can have a morsel of bread. What will the Lord say to them when they do? This priest is going to be raised up. Faithful priest that the Lord's going to raise up. And then everyone who is left in your house will come and implore him for a piece of silver. What will the Lord say to them? I don't know. Um, I don't want to know because I don't want to be like them. You know, in a minute I'll proclaim Claim the Lord's death with you in the Lord's Supper. And by proclaiming the Lord's death, I see the depth of sin's wickedness in the, in the remedy that it required. What would, how wicked must sin be to require the death of God's own Son? I see the Lord's mercy as beautiful and not trite. We are called to holiness, brothers and sisters. He, he has been so gracious toward us. So let us strive to live in the way that he's instructed us to live, thinking of other people before ourselves, not pursuing the, the passions of the flesh or the lust of the eyes. You know, the Lord gave us this supper for the very same reason that he gave them the peace offering. It's about our fellowship. It's about the peace that we have with one another through the peace that we have, each of us, with him. His wrath is satisfied in his son's death so that we have peace with God and peace with one another. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we're not making a sacrifice here. There's no, no need for that. Christ was sacrificed once for all and sufficiently for all his elect. But that's not to say that this is a mere memorial either. It's not. It's a means of grace. As we take hold of Christ as he is symbolized, represented for us under this, this symbol of the bread and the wine which represents his body and his blood, we do so by his spirit through faith. 
And in that, the Spirit reminds us of the forgiveness that's ours in Jesus, the union that we have with one another as well as with him, and so he nourishes our faith. So the Supper is about forgiveness and peace, like a peace offering, the peace that we have with God which comes through Jesus Christ. And if, if we are each united to Jesus, then we are each united to one another, for we, being many, are one bread, one body, for we are partakers of that one bread. So we, we're, we partake of Christ by faith, and, and he has given us these, these tangible symbols, these, these handles for our faith, because we're physical people. And the whole point is that we, the members of that one body, might have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's why when Paul warns us, when he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, let a person examine himself then. He says, for anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Well, we are together one body, the body of Christ. So as we come to the Lord's table, let us revel in the love of Christ that we all share. And let us resolve together to deny ourselves, to crucify the sin that continues to plague our walk with Christ, to resist the devil, and to follow Christ as those who bear his name should. So if you've received Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're resting alone uh, on his finished work alone for your salvation, uh, if you are baptized, professing member of his visible church, and if you're, if you're walking with him, trying to live before him in holiness, then this is for you. It's to encourage you and you and strengthen you in your walk. But if you're not trusting the Lord... Uh, as your Savior, if you're leaning on your own works or goodness, if you're, if you're not a member of a faithful Christian church, or, or if you're not currently walking with him, but if you're in stubborn rebellion, I would even warn you to wait. Rectify that. And then come and enjoy the unity and the peace that we share under the mercy of Jesus Christ. This is uh, not, this warning's not meant to keep the humble uh, are repentant away. You know, we, some people are sensitive, and this isn't this. The, the supper is for us sensitive souls to encourage us in our walk. Um, if you are rebelling against the Lord, you know it. So this isn't to keep the humble and repentant from eating. You don't. You're not gonna be free of sin this side of Christ's return. In fact, it's for sinners that He gives us this medicine for poor sick souls. So come to Jesus and find rest, refreshing, and nourishment for your weak and weary soul. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that you've set your love on us even before you founded the earth. And we are so grateful that in obedience to your Father and, and in your love for us, you, you laid aside your divine dignity and humbled yourself to, to take on human frame. Oh, Lord, thank you for giving us your righteousness. And thank you for taking our sin upon yourself. 
Holy Spirit, seal to our consciences the faith that we enjoy. Use these elements to point us all once again to the peace that we have with you, as well as the high calling that is ours in Christ Jesus, proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Father, we do praise you for the wonder of your salvation. We see in it your power and your wisdom and your goodness and your mercy. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we might walk faithfully with you, that we might share your fame and allow us by faith to feed upon Jesus Christ, crucified and raised for us so that being strengthened by grace, we might live in him and for him. Amen. Our Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread and blessed it and broke it.